Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette coming to you the day after we have learned quite a bit about the results of the Democratic primaries in the 2021 New York City elections, including Eric Adams prevailing in the primary for New York City mayor and very likely on track to become the next mayor of New York City, the second black mayor of New York City, and a trailblazer in a number of other ways. There's still the general election, of course, and Adams will have to defeat Republican nominee Curtis Sliwa, among others who will be on the ballot. But in the overwhelmingly Democratic city, he has significant advantage heading into that general election. We still don't have 100% official certified results from the Board of Elections. Those are due likely next week, but we have very close to the final results. Eric Adams prevailing in the count of all the in-person votes and almost all of the absentee and affidavit votes. There's still a few hundred votes out there, ballots that can be cured by voters who voted absentee and some other final uh, votes to tie together. But in the final rank choice runoff of the numbers we have so far, Eric Adams won 50.5% of the vote to Catherine Garcia's 49.5%, one percentage point, incredibly close race there. Maya Wiley will finish in third place, followed by Andrew Yang and Scott Stringer. But this really wound up being a three-candidate race with Adams, Garcia, and Wiley. Garcia edged Wiley in the next-to-last round of the ranked choice runoff. Uh, and then Garcia came up just short of Eric Adams. When Wiley eliminated in the ranked choice runoff, Garcia got a much bigger boost from Wiley's voters than Adams did. And tens of thousands of voters who wound up with Wiley did not rank either Garcia or Adams on their ballot, making those ballots exhausted once Wiley was eliminated by Garcia. Uh, remarkable to look at some of the ranked choice results. We'll have a lot more information on that at Gotham Gazette. But Eric Adams, the winner of the Democratic primary for mayor, we have a full rundown piece at Gotham Gazette for those who want to read about him and his background and his platform and prevailing over Garcia in the unofficial results by just over 8,400 votes and one percentage point. We can also say now that we are either completely certain or almost certain about a number of other Democratic nominees. Jamani Williams, the public advocate, who will be my guest later on in this show, is clearly going to be the Democratic nominee again for public advocate, will very likely win re-election. Brad Lander, who looked very strong in the Democratic Comptroller primary, has won there. Speaker Corey Johnson of the City Council has conceded that race. He came in second to Lander, who will be the Democratic nominee and very likely the next City Comptroller. In the borough president races, Antonio Reynoso winning the Democratic nomination in Brooklyn, Vanessa Gibson in the Bronx, Mark Levine in Manhattan, Mark Murphy on Staten Island. He will have a competitive general election against former Congressman Vito Fasella there. And in Queens, incumbent Queensborough President Donovan Richards holding on to a slight lead over former city council member Elizabeth Crowley. It looks like Richards will win that Democratic nomination and very likely remain Queensborough president, but there could be uh, some more counting of ballots there and even potentially a recount depending on how things shake out in Queens. And of course, Alvin Bragg, the Democratic nominee for Manhattan District Attorney in one of the most important races of this cycle. We had Alvin Bragg on 
uh, just after the primary to talk about his lead. He has won that primary for Manhattan DA and is almost certain to be the next Manhattan district attorney and the first black Manhattan district attorney at that. So those are the borough-wide, city-wide Democratic nominees, all of them heavily, heavily favored to win in the general elections. There will be uh, some competition in those general elections for the fall, but in overwhelming Democratic New York City, it's very likely all the Democratic nominees, except the Staten Island borough president race, uh, where the Republican will be favored there, will prevail. But we will, of course, examine the candidates and continue to cover the races through the general election and see where we're at. So joining me in just a few moments will be Bob Hart of Spectrum News and New York One to break down the results as we have them of the race for mayor. And later in the show, public advocate Jamani Williams with his reactions to what we know so far. He backed Maya Wiley in the mayoral primary and we'll get his reaction to Eric Adams's win in that primary and much more when we talk to public advocate Jamani Williams later on in the show. And we are very happy to welcome back to the show, although now, unfortunately, without our friend Jarrett Murphy, who, as everyone knows, has moved from journalism to nursing school, another noble profession. Uh, we're, we're happy to welcome back Bob Hart of Spectrum News and New York One. Bob is the New York political director for Spectrum News. Bob, thanks so much for coming on the show. Ben, thanks for having me. So we are talking the day after Eric Adams is officially uh, the Democratic nominee for mayor. They're still going to count some final votes and make it official official. But he has declared victory. Uh, The AP declared him the winner. Um, uh, Other candidates are conceding. Uh, So, Bob, how are you thinking about this win by Eric Adams? What are the big takeaways? How did he do it? Uh, put it in. Put it into some perspective for us. Well, he's a Brooklyn borough president, so he has that Brooklyn base. Obviously, uh, he's African American, which helps him with African American voters. But if it were just that, we wouldn't be talking about his win. And I think it was his ability to build on that base to do really well in the Bronx and parts of Manhattan. He did great in Queens. I think it was, yes, he cleaned up uh, with his base, but then he was able to reach out to others. Um, I I live in sort of a moderate uh, neighborhood in Rockaway where people I wouldn't expect necessarily came up to me and said, oh, you know, I'm I'm with Adams. Maybe the New York Post uh, endorsement helped him uh, with conservative Democrats, but whatever it was, whether it's his pedigree, hey, he's a retired police captain, or his campaigning, but it worked. It wasn't just, oh, he's a black guy from Brooklyn. That would not have gotten him to City, City Hall, or, or to, excuse me, to the nomination, and and likely the, the heavy favorite to win City Hall. And how about, what do you make of this message that Adams had about being a former police captain, police officer, at a time of rising gun violence, focused on public safety, but also, you know, often left out of the conversation, someone who has been a police reformer for decades, was known inside the department uh, as someone who was outspoken and the, and the department leadership didn't really appreciate uh, at the time. How well do you think he merged that message and the moment here? I mean, every campaign is obviously unfolding at a particular political moment. Um, when Andrew Yang was leading in the early polls, you know, people were saying he had sort of was tapping into the zeitgeist around, you know, the rebirth of the city economy. Um, 
even at that time, Eric Adams was tapping into this undercurrent zeitgeist of, of people who weren't so worried about necessarily going back to a Broadway show, right? I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. He checked both boxes. On the one hand, police reformer. On the other hand, former cop. So it, it was the best of both worlds for him in terms of the, the resume. And I also think that the other thing that sort of resonated with New Yorkers is he the idea that he projected, and he's right, he's a real New Yorker, blue collar New York. The idea that Andrew Yang isn't really part of the city's political fabric, I think helped him at a time when New Yorkers recovering from the pandemic want that security blanket of someone who's gonna take care of them, someone who is a lifelong New Yorker. I think that played really well. Uh, and that sort of, we sort of saw Andrew Yang's ceiling and he never broke through it, right? Like he had that a certain base of people who liked the rah-rah, but he never, Yang never built on it. And Adams really, I think, projected a lot of security to people who he wouldn't necessarily have thought maybe a year ago that would vote, who would vote for him. What else do you think was key to Eric Adams pulling this off? And I want to get to, obviously, Andrew Yang wound up finishing a distant fourth. We want to get to the second and third place finishers, Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley in a minute. But were there other aspects of how Eric Adams did this? Um, you know, a couple of things that come to mind for me are, are the labor support that he had. Uh, last week on the show, we had Neil Quatron, who was helping support the Adams campaign through the Hotel Trades Council, independent expenditure. Um, you know, so there was labor support. There was the independent expenditures that some were connected to labor, some weren't. Um, but were there other things for you that that did this for Eric Adams? All of those positives, obviously, but I believe the splintering of the opposition, the woke left, you had Diane Morales, you had Scott Stringer, you had Maya Wiley. Now, of course, you can rank people any which way you want on your ballot, which is what I think a lot of more progressive people thought. Well, in the end, we'll, we'll sort of unite. But Adams was able to, if you look at how he did with the absentee ballots, he was able to, to cherry pick uh, enough. He did very well with the Yang voters, but even Wiley voters, he, he got some there. I think it would have been, and again, this is a, you know, what happens when Superman fights Batman kind of conversation, we'll never know. But I think in a head-to-head -head matchup, if uh, a more liberal candidate, or even Garcia, who's sort of more liberal, but, you know, than, than say Adams, but still uh, moderate, I think in a two-week campaign, you could have had an anti-Adams coalition coalesce around another candidate, Amaya Wiley or Catherine Garcia, that could have been very problematic for Eric Adams. It was very reminiscent to me of Fernando Ferrer in 2001, who finished first but didn't get but didn't get enough votes to avoid a runoff with Mark Green. Lo and behold, Mark Green ran a great two-week campaign and was able to catch and beat Fernando Ferrer. Ironically, you know, Eric Adams was against ranked choice voting. It may have been the best thing in the end that, that may have happened for him. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's one thing we saw, and maybe we'll get if we have a few minutes to the controller race, but we saw Brad Lander in the controller race sort of had what wound up being the Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley factions in the in the mayoral race and was able to then get over the top there. Whereas, um, you know, the, I mean, the map, this map of the mayoral race with Garcia cleaning up in Manhattan and then some other places around the city, some interesting spots. And then and then Wiley really getting the sort of um, <laughs> gentrification belt of, of Brooklyn and Queens, for lack of a better term, really remarkable. Um the money in this race, though, also can't be ignored. Eric Adams and the independent expenditures behind him, I believe, spent more than the Garcia Wiley entities and campaigns combined. Um, I, that was something I asked Neil Quattro about. He said, of course, it plays a role, but, you know, you have to have the candidate, you have to have the, the moment. 
any initial sort of analysis or thoughts on those factors or, or the fact that, you know, this, this was someone with such an, such institutional support, such a background, he's been running for mayor for years, if not decades in a, in a way. Um, but how that sort of played into what we saw unfold here. I think Neil's right. Like, listen, obviously the money helps, but the, the message has to be there as well. I mean, look at Sean Donovan's, uh, uh, his father's pack. You know, I'm Sean Donovan, you know, it was a belly flop. Ray McGuire, lots and lots of money, belly flop. So you, you need the combination. I, I, obviously, you know, we could sit here and argue, well, would you have gotten that extra point uh, if you didn't have the money? We'll, we'll never know. But I, I would argue, and I sound almost like I work for the campaign finance board, that the, all the candidates have enough money to get their message out. Uh, opening up my mailbox every day, I, I heard from all of them, including Diane Morales, yeah. um, which is a testament to matching funds. I mean, she had literally had millions of dollars to spend. They all did. It, it probably gave him a leg up. But again, I think Neil's right. If, if Eric Adams isn't a, a, a strong candidate, it probably wouldn't get him over the top. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, you know, while Catherine Garcia did access the millions of dollars in matching funds, so she was not unfunded by any means, she didn't have the regular fundraising and, you know, campaign finance match to the extent that Adams did. And she certainly didn't have the outside spending that he did or some other candidates did, some who failed terribly and, and of course, Adams who did well. But she showed what could be done with without a ton of money, uh, without having run for office before, what do you make of the Catherine Garcia campaign? I mean, this was a pretty remarkable uh, run that she had to come within one percentage point of pulling this off against, again, someone who's been, you know, a politician uh, for a long time, fundraising apparatus, union endorsements, et cetera. She almost became the Angela Merkel, Merkel of New York City, right? I mean, she's not that politically charismatic at all. We've watched debates and forums with her. She's perfectly fine in that. But you look at like someone who has a spark, like a Maya Wiley or an Andrew Yang or an Eric Adams, all of them are better, uh, I'd say, performative politicians. It's remarkable to me. And I think it shows a little bit that when people are writing off newspaper endorsements, it shows to me a little bit of the power of the New York Times. And I think that also was what I was talking to you about with the pandemic, that New York, some New Yorkers are like, I don't care if, if this person is good on the campaign trail. I care that this woman ran the city. And I think that was a really strong appeal to her was that, you know, I, I don't care if this person, you know, can tell a funny joke. Can they do my taxes? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's what she played to. But she really didn't have that political pizzazz that helped the other uh, other candidates. And I honestly think that was definitely a factor. New Yorkers think of Koch. Now, yes, we, we've had Bloombergers, not that, that charismatic. But from, for every Bloomberg, there, there's like a Jimmy Walker or a LaGuardia. Not that I'm lumping them together, except they're, they're both larger than life in terms of personality. John Lindsay, all of these people had it. Um, and Eric Adams definitely has that kind of spark that I think appealed to some New Yorkers. And Catherine Garcia did not have that. How much of a response to de Blasio, you know, I mean, for me, the Catherine Garcia campaign was this combination of looking at the boost that something like a New York Times endorsement can have, something like a very strong, consistent message, especially in a ranked choice system where you want to be, as she called it, the consensus candidate. Um, but she got plenty of first place votes, too. Uh but it was a combination of some of that and and some of that, of course, related to de Blasio, but also to me, especially in Manhattan and, and some of the parts of Brooklyn and, and definitely parts of Staten Island and elsewhere that she did well, the most significant sort of repudiation of de Blasioism to me was actually Catherine Garcia. What do you what do you make of that? In yeah, terms, I mean, it's, it's ironic, right? I'm running the city. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's ironic because she worked for him. Um, but the, I think the knock on de Blasio was that he wasn't interested in the job. He didn't know where the levers were to, you know, to move the crane. And the idea was that she knew all those things. And she wasn't ideological, I think, to a lot of New Yorkers. Yes, she's a Democrat, but she ran the sanitation um, department. You know, the old cliche is that there was no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the garbage. By the way, I don't believe, I don't buy that. You know, people always want to privatize things. Right. But I, I think that was the appealing appealing thing about her to to some people. But again, there's also I, I you know you nailed this early in our conversation. The, the concerns about crime. Uh, are definitely there over the last year. And that definitely helped Adams. But I don't want to paint him as, I mean, you know, we were just talking to him and he's like saying safety, safety, safety. I do not want to paint him as a one issue candidate because if it were, I don't think he would have got, gotten elected. You know, I'm really glad you said that because one of the things uh, I, I'm working on pointing out is that up until when when the gun violence, you know, the Times Square shooting and some of these other incidents really made gun violence the premier issue. And, and again, you know, some of the discussion in the debates obviously made that so front and center, crime, disorder, et cetera. Eric Adams talked as much about the Department of Education as he did the police department. And, you know, his focus on education, I think, is one of the most interesting things to, to follow here. And when I get it chance to talk to him next. I'll ask him a lot about that since he's getting a lot of policing questions elsewhere. But um, but let's let's flip that and talk about Maya Wiley a little bit. Uh, also, first time candidate, but came in with a lot more sort of wind at her back, let's say, having been an MSNBC commentator, a bit more known to the city's political scene. What are your thoughts on how that campaign went? Um, you know, she needed to to break through to some of Eric Adams's black voters that it doesn't seem like she really broke through to. She needed to capture a lot of the Manhattan votes that Catherine Garcia wound up capturing. What's your assessment of where that campaign did well and, and fell short? I, I, she did very well overall. Like I, she was a, a lot of people's top two choices, you know, one, one of the top two choices. The, she was the biggest beneficiary, I believe, of the implosion of Scott Stringer, the city controller who looked like a very, very strong candidate for a long time. And it, the, the campaign got derailed or by, by the allegation of sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault by uh, a, a former associate from from like two decades ago. And the thing that I think really hurt Stringer the most, though, was the, def- the defection of a whole bunch of elected officials who were with him to my primarily Maya Wiley. So I, if you'd asked me in February or March, how's, how's the Wiley campaign doing? I'd have said, it's doing okay. I don't know if this was like this great moment of campaigning or, or campaign strategy uh, by Maya Wiley's team, or the fact that there was liberal voters who wanted to go someplace, saw that Diane Morales' uh, campaign was spiraling out of control, liked what they heard from Maya Wiley. I mean, she is very charismatic and, and went with her. I, I think that's ultimately what happened and why she did so well. Uh, there was a need. I mean, sort of like how de Blasio, when Anthony Weiner imploded eight years ago, suddenly de Blasio was taking off. I think that's happened with, with Maya Wiley is that she really benefited from the collapse of Scott Springer. Right. And she got the, the fairly late but well-timed, in a sense, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsement and a number of others. Um, I mean, to me, you know, the Maya Wiley campaign, once Stringer was was seemingly knocked out of contention for things like the New York Times endorsement, if she didn't get that, she was going to have a real tough time. And, and as to your point, you know, sort of the splintering of the non-Adams vote there, uh, you know, seems to have, to have held her back. 
Any other thoughts, Bob, on some of the other candidates? You know, uh, Andrew Yang, you, you mentioned before. Anything in retrospect here you think could have gone differently for him? Um, I was always of the mind that, you know, his initial sort of bubble of name recognition and likability was going to fade to some extent. I didn't necessarily think he was sure to, to wind up losing, but I always seemed like that was a little bit of a bubble ready to, to pop in some way. Um, but anything on his campaign that really sticks out to you as we do a little postmortem here? I think the thing he would have had to have done is instead of go to Georgia and campaign for the, the Senate candidates is even before the presidential election is just say, listen, I, I want to be mayor of New York City to have done like a Hillary Clinton listening tour. I mean, remember when she ran for the, the Senate, it was almost like a two year rollout. And by the time she the campaign was really underway against Rick Lazio, she had been to like almost every county at that point. I think going, you know, it's easy for me to say now in hindsight, I think that if Andrew Yang had last year said, I really, really want to thinking about doing this, I'm going to do in a five borough listening to or whatever that could have helped him and inoculated him against uh, Eric Adams and some of the others. The line did play well, I think, with some people saying, hey, I reject the political establishment. It hasn't done enough for New York. I think it's a very effective line. The problem was that I, I do believe that the idea that, that that the idea, the fact that he never voted in a municipal election until this one, uh, it was very, very damaging. Um, but I do think he, he could have had more of a fighting chance if we were so sick of him for like being campaigning for a year rather than, what was it, six months? Yeah, barely. Uh, you know, yeah, it, I mean, I think, again, you know, he needed a lot of these Manhattan votes that wound up going to Catherine Garcia, right? I mean, he needed to really break through with, you know, some of the liberal leaning voters that are not necessarily the hardcore progressives. But, uh, you know, again, he was eclipsed there. Um, the the question of um Andrew Yang and Eric Adams and media scrutiny. We've seen a lot of criticism from Yang's campaign, even Yang himself, about how he was treated. And Eric Adams also was treated, but treated, in their opinion, better. What do you make of the scrutiny that Yang got and the scrutiny that Adams got? You're obviously a, a, a longtime veteran of covering city politics um, at, at various places. What, do you, what did you make of that? I mean, they, I would say those two got the most scrutiny and part of it is because they were both front runners for the longest period of time. And Andrew Yang got everything he deserved. Same thing with Eric Adams. I do think there was less scrutiny of Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley. Um, and part of it is, as you know, with eight candidates running around, it, di it divides your resources. Uh, but I would say both of those candidates got a lot of scrutiny. Most of it fair. I don't think all of it, but most, most of it. Um, and I do think that Eric Adams will have to answer some of the, the questions about, is he engaged in transactional politics or was he as borough president and state senator? That's luckily for him. I think that's not something that uh, worries lots and lots of voters. Um, you know, the, the does he live in New Jersey played better. But to me, that's less relevant of where he lives than where he stands and what he does. And that, I think, actually hurt him uh, with, with the, certainly hurt him with the New York Times endorsement and others is, oh, is he a clubhouse politician or is he going to be when he comes to City Hall, a person who isn't saying, let's make a deal. Um, and, and so that, to me, is a very resonant issue that definitely damaged him with some voters. Mm. So let's stick with that. Uh, the general election, we're looking at uh, five or six you know, candidates on the ballot or so. There might be some some others who. 
uh, got the requisite signatures to get there, but you know, a few minor party candidates. But the real main race is obviously Eric Adams, the Democratic nominee, and Curtis Sliwa, the Republican nominee. Uh, the stat, the deck is stacked against Sliwa in a major way, just given voter enrollment. Obviously, to win as a Republican, uh, you most likely need to be able to drop $100 million on your campaign. Um, but what's the landscape here as we enter the general election? Is this mostly about further vetting of Eric Adams? Is it uh, about, you know, we have all this time now that the primary was moved up to June. What what happens here? <laughs> I mean, it, I think there's going to be more written about Curtis Sliwa than than since like the late 70s or early 80s, just because he's the Republican nominee. And if you look at it in terms of third a third party candidate, we've only had in modern times in New York two third party candidates become mayor, and they were both sitting mayors who lost John Lindsay and, and uh, Vincent Pelletieri, who lost their their party primary. So they were already in City Hall. So it's, that's not going to happen. We've seen, as you know, we've seen. Uh, a bunch of prominent Republicans uh, becoming mayor. I don't know if Curtis Lee is going to be joining their ranks for a lot of the reasons you, you mentioned money, uh, message, the political climate right now. Um, you know, Donald Trump, uh, if he says anything pro Sliwa, that's, that's like kryptonite in a heavily democratic New York city. So I do think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of Eric Adams stories. You know, what did he do in Albany? What did he do in Brooklyn Borough Hall? More about who he is. Um, but out of you know, fairness to the voters, we also have to do that about Curtis Lewa looking at the history of the Guardian Angels, you know, mm-hmm. looking at his his foundation, all, all of these things. But it is, it does feel like a very long, you know, the start, you know, speed bump uh, to January first, and that's why Eric Adams is talking about, hey, and to his credit, he's saying Sliwa too. Both Sliwa and, and uh, the Adams camp should have informal conversations with Bill De Blasio to smooth the transition uh, in January next year. Yeah, those are those are interesting thoughts, especially now that we we do, we do know the two uh, major party nominees here in early early July. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it's interesting looking ahead to the general election, even if the voter enrollment was closer and you had these two candidates, Curtis Lewa, you know, it's going it's very hard to run on a sort of public safety law and order message against Eric Adams, right? From the Republican side of things, it's like the ideal, uh, ideal candidate for Democrats to just sort of swat away a Republican challenger at this point, even with rising gun violence. Um, the, the, the process, though, of looking at Eric Adams as this very likely next mayor, um, a transition period that he's sort of going to begin while running a general election. This is a very strange period. But to your point about Eric Adams as a transactional politician, a clubhouse politician, what are the things we most need to be sort of watching for, uh, you know, as as members of the media sort of uh, warning people about when he's making these decisions um, and you know, he's promising to run city government a lot better than Bill de Blasio. Uh, but it seems like those might be in conflict to each other, right? That he was very close to the Brooklyn Democratic Party, even though the, the county didn't formally endorse him, its leader did, uh, and things like that. Well, I think it's a good time for Eric Adams to sort of sort of stretch his legs and show his independence to, and he has plenty of time to do that, uh, to say, hey, listen, I'm not just beholding, holding to these donors. I mean, we in the media should look at everyone who, who uh, is involved with his campaign financially uh, and with his PAC financially uh, and try to figure out why is this person giving him money? Is it just because they like him or is there some other reason? And I think if he's smart, he's going to be really on guard 
uh, in, in City Hall to avoid the pitfalls. Listen, Eric Adams is a really, really smart guy, and maybe you don't have to make a deal uh, anymore. I, it, it's hard. It's, I mean, David, it happened to David Dinkins. It happened to Ed Koch. It happened to Abe Beam. But it almost feels like you know a different political era. It's hard for a Democratic incumbent to lose. Um, and I, I think that Eric Adams, if he really wants to impress the people who didn't vote for him, it, it's to do, do some stuff out of the box. And because he's really smart, I, I think that's a real possibility that he surprises a lot of people uh, over the coming months. If you look at his biography, there's plenty of surprises along the way. Um, and I, I would not be at all surprised if he, if you and I are talking a couple months from now saying, oh, he's already indicated that so-and-so is going to be his first deputy mayor. And I think that's where he needs to get creative. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is the, unfortunately a lot of the conversation in this race, um, you know, didn't didn't quite have the nuance it should. I mean, I think you know the idea that Eric Adams was painted as this moderate to conservative, uh, you know, really belied a lot of the stuff he's talking about. Um, for, for another time, I want to get you out of here on, on one more question, which is what you just got at a little bit though is. To me, one of the interesting things about Eric Adams, we'll see the decisions he makes, we'll see the appointments he makes, we'll see the policies, but that there is this possibility that the city's left would really try to mount some sort of primary challenge to him eventually. We, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But my question really is about the, the city's political landscape here, because we did see Brad Lander win the Democratic nomination for comptroller and likely become the next uh, city comptroller. Again, there will be a general election, but very hard for a Republican to win. Any any parting thoughts here, Bob, in this conversation about sort of the po- political landscape in the city, the fractured nature, uh, what we're what we're looking at here? So, first of all, I think your point is dead on about Adams not being as moderate as he sort of painted himself in the race. <laughs> look at his political history. You know, look at his his voting record in the state senate, but. There's already a narrative out there saying, oh, well, there's going to be a liberal city council that's going to be a counterbalance to a moderate mayor. That sort of flies in the face of since the charter was redone, the the mayor's relationship with the city council. This isn't like Congress uh, or even the legislature these days with Andrew Cuomo. The, the city has been really dominated by the executive. And it's it's because the different mayors have been able to, to buy off or, or splinter off different members of the city council. So unless there's a total warfare between the city council and, and Eric Adams, if he were to be mayor, I, I do think he will be in the driver's seat, at least for a while, um, unless the city council really gets its act together and becomes politically unified to take on uh, a new mayor, which I, I just don't see because most of the members of the council are gonna be new as well. So I, I think the most important point is, is what you alluded to is, I don't I, I don't think we're going to be seeing like this like centrist Democrat. I, on the other hand, he's not going to be far left. Everyone and look at Bill de Blasio. Once you're running the city, you, you, you become a little bit more moderate when you have to deal with these labor contracts and everything else. So but I would caution anyone who thinks the city council is going to totally steer him. They haven't been following the city uh, under all these different mayors, how powerful the mayor is uh, uh, vis-a-vis the city council. And I'll also add to that. If you really look at the city council election results that it seems like we're looking at, I don't know that the city council is even going to be that far left. I mean, we'll see who the speaker is and what the coalitions wind up being. But there's a pretty strong moderate streak there in the in exactly. the, council and the, uh, the Democratic Socialist of America slate didn't do that well and, and so on and so on. 
Bob, we could do this for hours. We'll, we'll stop there. Um, but thank you so much for the time. Bob Hart is the New York political director for Spectrum News and, of course, a great presence over at Spectrum News New York One. Bob, thanks again for taking the time. Ben, thanks so much. Uh, and we'll talk to you soon.